Father, we thank you for your word, how it is a light unto our paths. It guides us. It allows us to be trained in the ways of righteousness. It allows us to understand our fallen natures and what is wrong and how you're going to make everything right. So, Father, as we dig into it, we'd ask that you would help us to understand, to retain the information, to apply it by the power of your spirit. For we know in our flesh dwells no good thing, and we cannot accomplish anything by sheer might. So we ask, Lord, that you would transform us as we get into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And speaking of transformation... Peter, James, and John, they went up on the mountain, probably uh, in northern Israel, beyond northern Israel today, and they saw Jesus transfigured, and Elijah was up there, and Moses was there, and they heard the Father's voice, and Peter wrote about this years later in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. And Jesus also let the disciples know that, because they had a question about, Elijah's supposed to come first, right? And Jesus said, well, if you can receive it, John the Baptist was Elijah. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And there were a lot of similarities between Elijah and John the Baptist. And right after this, he healed a boy with a demon. And the disciples could not do it. And it was because of their lack of faith. And the importance, the necessity of faith or trust in Jesus as we follow him is just paramount. We should never worry about a single thing. When you see the world and everything that's going on in the world, do you worry or fret as to what might take place? There is a movement by some that are out there on the climate change. They're so concerned that we are going to die in the next 10 or 12 years. And it's just not going to happen. It's not going to take place because God told us when the climate's going to change, and that's during the tribulation period. And then you need to worry. But right now, we don't need to worry about anything at all. What about finances, what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear, any of that? God says you don't have to worry. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So we should be able to live just a carefree life, and that was the point of faith and trust that was not demonstrated by his disciples. And, of course, it was true of the father who brought this uh, young boy or this man as well to be healed of the demon he didn't really believe but he said help my unbelief and so that's the lesson for us the object of their faith was their own ability at least the disciples they tried to cast out this demon by what they thought that they could accomplish and we must be willing to believe that jesus can accomplish great things through us even when we lack faith God just moves according to his uh, grace and his mercy and his providence over creation. Now, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 22, we pick it up here. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus told them, he was going to die. Remember Peter, when he told Peter that, hey, I'm going to go be crucified. He goes, not as long as I'm alive. Of course, that's the BBV, the Bill Bachter's version. But that's what he told him. And Jesus turned to him and said, get thee behind me, Satan, in the King James Version. And he rebuked him because that was his whole purpose, was to come to earth to die, to be the sacrifice. Guess what our purpose is? As we live on earth, to die. That's our purpose is exactly the same. We do not our will, but we do the will of the Father. And this is a concept that we, especially in our community, in our country, we don't like to hear. Do you ever get frustrated when somebody tells you you can't? When you know you could, they're just unwilling and you want it your way and you want it your way, now way. And if you don't get it now way, you're upset, hey. You know, you, you just, you start getting all apoplectic. Why not? Why can't you do this? And we want everything to comport to our beliefs and our lifestyle and everything that we desire. And our example is to be like Jesus, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice daily. 
And that's difficult to do. But Jesus is our example in this. And he told us, he told the disciples that he would have to go and be crucified. Now, this was prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, that he would be cut off. This is actually the fulfillment of prophecy. In Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, it tells us he is betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Psalm 22 describes the crucifixion. And there are over 300 such verses that speak about Jesus coming as the suffering Messiah. And that's how we can trust that it is trustworthy, that it is true, that it's not just a story made up by some. And I think for some in the world, it is difficult to believe that what Jesus said was going to take place because we don't really see the evidence, except the Christians do. We see the evil in the world. We see the violence which is out there, and God calls all of that bad, and it's going to be done away with. But the world, it's just part of their life. It's how they live. It's the way things operate. Our, rule, our world is ruled by violence and force, if you think about it. And the person who wants to come along and say, no, I want to carry the olive branch like the dove, they're going to be bowled over. They're going to be wiped out. And in order to maintain righteousness, at least in our countries, force has to be used to suppress the evil. You go to World War One and World War Two. that's what took place. We had to come in and actually bring the force to, for righteousness purposes and stop the evil which was progressing. Now, we don't have weapons of warfare as far as battling the enemy. Our weapons are spiritual to the pulling down of strongholds. We have prayer. We have the word of God, all of those things. And we can use those, but oftentimes we're not skilled in doing so. So the disciples, they lacked understanding why Jesus had to die, even though they had been raised in the Old Testament teachings, in the books of Moses, and in the prophets, and the minor prophets, and the poetry, all of that was pretty clear, but they just had not made the connection, and it didn't happen until after the resurrection. Now going on here, we have the temple tax. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, Go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. This prompted me to get a fishing pole. (laughs) Just like, if God can do that. You know, uh, did you guys see the news? They're going to go out and try to retrieve or investigate a meteor that is solid gold did you hear about that did you see that on the news and the the line was we'll all be billionaires that's a person clearly doesn't have an understanding of understanding of economics and how economics works if everybody had a billion dollars it would be a trillion to buy a car you know that that's the way that things work as far as the economy is concerned But this idea that we don't have enough, you know, uh, Patty and I went to the Del Mar Fair uh, this last week. And there's things that are there that are are just beautiful. We went and we looked at my granddaughter. She had some art there and we're looking at all the art and some of it's really good. And other, you know, it's it's adequate. And, And then we go over to the precious stones and all these stones that are cut and nice and beautiful. And they would take this rock and it just looks like a hunk of dirt. And they had cut right through it and you open it up and you say, whoa, look at the gems inside of that rock. 
And when they have the shiny rocks, you know, they have a, a box there and all the shiny rocks are there and you want to put your fingers in there with all the kitty fingers that have been in there and grabbing everything, you know, and wiping noses and all that stuff. And so you grab those rocks and they're all beautiful colors. There's pink and blue and gold and metallic. I mean, just wonderful looking colors in there. And those are the colors of the rocks that God created in this earth. And then we're over by the flowers. You know, we're going through all the flowers over there. We're looking at the roses and the, the double blooms and the single blooms and the ranunculus. And they're, they're just all gorgeous. And we get to the end, we look over all the flowers. And I turned to Patty and said, that's what it's going to be like in heaven. All of those flowers, all that color that is going to be there. She goes, that's how I want my house to look. And I'm, of course you want your house to look like that. You know, it's just beautiful, the colors that were there. And I know because of the fall, I think we all understand this, that all of the beauty that was in the earth when it was created was suppressed because of that. The colors that are in the stone, and we see evidence of that uh, here and there, but the new heaven and the new earth, it's going to be color, technicolor is what it's going to be, even more so in the the whiteness of Jesus Christ, the blazing lightning-like color that he will have, and the there's an emerald uh, rainbow over his throne, and the foundations of the city that comes down there, all different colors, and there's light radiating out of all of it. It will be the most incredible light show that will be there. The wealth that God is going to give us, and yet we worry about having enough. And God says, like I told you previously, Matthew 6, 33, just seek after God, and you don't have to worry about any of this. We don't have to fret. You know, what are some of the things we can fret about? The medical industry, which is out there, the insurance. I know somebody personally, a family member, they needed to use it. And you know what the deductible was $12,000 and you have to spend $12,000 before your insurance even kicks in now are you worried about that well what's the worst that can happen you die and you go to heaven I mean that's the worst that can happen but we we think to ourselves well I don't want to die who wants to die nobody wants to die but God says die and you'll live And, you know, it's just hard for us to reconcile this stuff. But God says, don't worry about it. Everybody dies. It's only a moment. You're just falling asleep. And then you're going to wake up and you're going to have this new glorious body that is going to shine from the inside. And you're going to live in heaven, the glorious foundation stones that are up there. And light everywhere. And angels flying around and loud and singing. And it's going to be a rock concert. It's just going to be fantastic up there. But we, I don't know, what am I going to eat tomorrow? Just ask the Lord. He provides everything that we need, including a four drachma coin and a fish that is there. If we need anything, God can cause a meteorite of gold to fall in your backyard. And then look, you're going to be taken care of. And so God wants us to learn that lesson that he will provide everything that we need according to his riches and glory. Now also, he let it be known, first of all, rabbis were exempt from paying the tax. And Jesus was considered a rabbi. But he decided to pay the tax anyway. Now, why did he do that? The text says why he did that. And it was in order not to bring an offense. Even though he could get out of it, it might bring an offense. So he paid it anyhow. Now, that's a lesson for us. What if uh, somebody wants to sue you and take you to court? What does scripture say you're supposed to do if they want to take your coat? Give your cloak as well. You, you don't even have to go to court and say, but wasn't enough? Here, take my cloak as well. So your coat was underneath the cloak, which you would probably sleep in during that time. And you just give it all to them. And, and that's how we're supposed to operate. We're not supposed to worry about what we might not have because God will take care of it. And Jesus had no money. Neither did Peter. Now, Peter was responsible for paying the tax. He wasn't a rabbi. And Jesus says, don't worry about it, Peter. I got you covered. And, of course, he went down. He had to work a little bit. You know, he had to throw the line in the water. I wonder how long he had to wait. 
an hour. Probably as soon as he threw that hook in there, he probably didn't even need bait. The thing just probably came up, grabbed the hook, and oh, look at this. And it was a miracle for all who would have seen it. Now, how do you stage something like that? There's so many miracles that take place in the New Testament. And those people who doubt that God exists or that he's good, they just discount all the miracles. And all these miracles were recorded by at least four individuals in the four Gospels. And so that gives us hope as well. We have plenty of evidence to believe that God is going to take care of us, that Jesus loves us beyond measure, and he will provide everything that we need according to his riches and glory. Now, there's a side note with this. Some people would like to say, oh, Matthew was written way later. And it wasn't because Matthew would have corrected this in the text. But before 70 A.D., the temple tax was in place. After 70 A.D. and the sacking of the temple, it would have been necessary to pay your tax to the Roman government because they switched that tax to the god Jupiter. And you had to pay it. So if Peter and everything that was experienced there uh, and Matthew wrote it down, he would have said that's no longer the case. And so that's how we know it was written before 70 AD. And by the way, all of the Gospels are written in the first century, the oldest one being the book of Revelation, probably written in 95 AD. And lots of people like to say, no, these were just written years afterwards. So that's just a little apologetic that I'd like to give you on that. Now, also... Why do we work? Why do we have these possessions? Why does God give us a job? Why do we need to have this money in the first place? You know, we have to pay our tax, that type of thing. Of course, it's because God wants us to have something to share with others. And this is what Jesus did. Of his wealth, he shared with Peter. Of our wealth, we're supposed to share with others. We're not to be stingy in any way. Uh, has somebody come up to you and said, hey, man, can I borrow five bucks? And if they ask you to borrow five bucks, guess what you're supposed to give them? Five bucks. Now what? And I've talked about this before. What if it's a homeless man comes up and says, hey, can you lend me five bucks? Scripture does address that. You know, we can, and I've addressed it before, this idea of helping somebody out the first time's a freebie. Second time, you know, we, we don't want people caught in that mess. Is that becoming a mess right now? I mean, you, you've heard me say it. There's an app in San Francisco for the piles through the city that you might avoid them. Uh, it's, it's just incredible how bad it is getting out there with the homelessness, and we're doing nothing. We're trying to placate them and put them into shelters. By the way, this is in the realm of not just teaching, but preaching. There are things that are wrong and things that are right. And God wants us to be responsible. God wants us to have employment that we might share with others, just as Jesus shared with Peter and paid his tax when he had nothing. And we're supposed to help out individuals who are really in dire straits, who truly have a need not the individual said, no, I love this the way I am, and you just need to help me out. And some people become belligerent in this. I just happened this last week to see a video of a woman. She was standing on a street corner. She had a sign, and she was holding out the sign. She was panhandling is what she was doing. And she wasn't dressed terribly bad, but she was standing out there with a sign. And then she had, you know how they'll stand next to a stoplight or in the center median, and they'll hold that sign there? And some of the people that do that, they're real humble. They just kind of walk down the center. Well, this woman was going, holding the sign up to the window of the cars, like, you need to give this to me. And the guy who was filming this, he put in the caption, this woman is not homeless. Then he films her coming to her brand new little SUV. And then the guy confronts her. And then she goes to the drive-up window at a McDonald's saying, call the cops, you need to leave me alone. And she was totally shamed and embarrassed that she was caught panhandling when she didn't have to, when she had tremendous riches. And so there are people that will take advantage of that. But God wants us, like Jesus, to provide for those who don't have. That's why we are employed. And we're supposed to save some just for those who might be in need. 
That's the graciousness of God to do that, and that's how we are to be gracious. We're to be just like him. Now, going on here, we have in chapter 18, the fourth of five discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. The first one was the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. The second one was the commissioning of the 12 in chapter 10. Then you had the kingdom parables in chapter 13. And here you have life in the church is what I'll call it in chapter 18. Of course, then there's the Olivet Discourse, which is in Matthew chapter 24. So Matthew really is great about recording these sermons and these teachings about Jesus. Real demarcation lines of this is right, this is wrong, this is what's to be expected, this is what the kingdom of God is like. All of these things have been given to us for our edification. And so what happens here is the life in the church, the disciples have a question in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, you know the bent of the disciples. They thought, they might have been better. Than, I, I do more miracles than you. No, you do more miracles. You think so. Yeah, but all you did was, you know, healed a wound on an arm. But this person, I restored a leg. Yeah, I, I could just see them going back and forth. Well, I'm, I'm more imbued with the Holy Spirit than you are. And that's all pride. And, of course, we know that there were two brothers that had their mom intercede. Well, do they get to sit on the right and left-hand side when you get to heaven? And Jesus says, yeah, what's wrong? Ay vey, what's wrong with you guys? That's not for me. To, that's only for the Father. He determines what's going to happen with who gets a place of authority in heaven. And by the way, all of us in here are going to be a kingdom of priests unto God. When you get saved here, God... Uh, foreordained that that should happen, that you would be saved, and you got to choose to be saved. And when you go to heaven, he is going to have a particular task for you to accomplish. Now, in between us here and heaven, there is going to be the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. When you come back here, when we come back here, we are going to be interceding for the people that are here. We're going to have our glorified bodies. We're not going to be tempted like we are tempted today. The, the fallen nature is going to be taken away completely. And we will be able to live a life guided by the Holy Spirit. We'll know exactly what his will is at any given time. And he'll probably tell us, go minister to that person or instruct that person over there. Because after all, there will be human beings in their natural bodies, the one that survived the tribulation, and they repopulate the earth. We come back and he gives us responsibility for their care, for their instruction, for intercession on their behalf. That's what we are going to be doing. Now, we probably all will not be back in Lakeside. I voted for the Caribbean, uh, but I, I don't know where you guys would like to go, but there are lots of places where God could send us, and I'm willing to go wherever he wants me to go, and I'm sure you would say the same thing. And at that time, the earth is going to be restored. There's not going to be the problems of decay that are going to be taking place. But God is going to give us work to do. We're going to have a task. And even when you get to heaven, we don't know what that task is going to be. But he's going to give us something to do. We're not just going to sit around and say, what you want to do? We're going to have a task that he's going to provide for us. And so these guys think they're great and they wanted to know, so who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Maybe because they wanted to be a little bit greater than they were. And he called a little child, verse 2, and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth. In the King James it says, verily I say unto you. In other words, you're supposed to know that assuredly this is true. He puts emphasis on it right here. Unless you change... So he's addressing the disciples. <laughs> unless you change, who you think you're great, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> and little children that he is talking about here, he's talking about a very young child. He's not talking about a child that is four or five years old. He's talking about a child that probably just started to walk maybe has a few words, maybe, you know, a couple hundred words can say things like his favorite word, no, you know, that, that type of thing. But 
very young. Now, a very young child like that is completely dependent on their parents. But they don't walk around going, what am I going to eat today? They're not doing that. They, they might say, I'm hungry. You know, something like that. How old are you? Oh, two years old. You know, some, whatever it is, they're young. They're, they're very uh, delicate in the way that they're being raised. And the parents, especially moms, they brood over their little children and guide them and make sure they don't get hurt. That child, like I said, is completely dependent upon the parents. And Jesus says, unless you become like that child, you'll never get into heaven. And what is he talking about there? That you have to be like a little baby? Remove the fallen nature of little children, let alone adults. Just remove the fallen nature of little kids. Have you ever seen a bunch of little kids play together? And there's toys. Mine. And they grab that toy and the other one, so, and they go for it, and then pretty soon they're pushing each other. That's the fallen nature at work. But the other side of that is just the sweetness and the dependence. Patty and I, I, I took my wife to dinner, and we're sitting at a place down in Mission Valley, and, and we're up against the wall in this booth, and there are several booths, and there's a booth maybe four booths away, and they're all empty except for that one. And in the aisle is this little child old enough to communicate but not really have words, old enough to walk but still wanting to be carried. And it was this little girl. And she had hair that would not stop. I mean, just, and she had this little bow. And she catches my eye. You know, I look at her. The first thing she does is smile. She smiles right at me. Of course, I'm just delighted. She wants to smile at me. And then she goes. And I'm, you know, I'm just thrilled. And so I'm waving back and the parents, they're looking like, what, what's going on here? And they turned around and, and they looked at me and they looked at Patty and they just started smiling. You know, well, the grandparents that are sitting there just waving to the little kids. And, and, and it was just a great thing. The little child there and she just kept it up. She wouldn't stop. And, of course, the parents, the mom especially, she was just delighted. You know, the the little girl was just interacting with us, just the sweetness that was there. And she would want something, and she'd lean forward. The mom would give it to her, and she was just as content as she could be. And as they walked by, she knew that we were interacting. And she kind of slowed down at the table, and she turned the little girl to us, and she just looked at us with her hand in her mouth and kind of smiled, and the mom was smiling. It was just a great thing. The little child, the innocence that was there. And God says, you have to be like that. I want you, all of us, have to be like that little baby. Instead of thinking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, God wants us to focus on becoming like a little child. He goes on in verse 4, Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of God. So our trust is to be like that of a little child does not question, doesn't even enter their mind that they don't have something. The characteristics of a child like that are simple. They're not complex. They're helpless, no resources on their own. They're not worried. They're carefree about things. They trust completely and they are completely dependent. God wants us to be like that with him. This goes back to the last one, last story I told you about Jesus paying the tax. Don't worry. Do you owe taxes to the IRS? Call on the Lord. Say, Lord, I messed up. Could you please send some money? You know, something like that. And you don't have to do it in desperation. You just ask, Father, you, you would take care of us. You know the mistakes I've made, and I know that you're faithful to do that. And he does. He will be faithful. And if he doesn't, well, maybe he wants you to evangelize somebody in jail. Let's go on. <clears throat> So you you get the idea, right? You don't have to worry about it. Well, I'm going to jail today. Okay, well, what am I going to do? What does the Lord want me to do in there? I messed up, and so this is what I'm supposed to do. The Lord has a way of moving us around. We're not supposed to worry at all. 
Verse 5 he says, And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. So a, a little child, but also a child of God is what he's referring to here. You welcome a little child. I can't wait for the next grandbaby to come along. You know, it's just a little child. It's going to be a boy. It's just going to be fun. You know, he's going to have him there welcoming a little baby, welcoming a little child. And God says, if you do that, it's the same as welcoming me, especially if it's a young baby Christian or a Christian who is humble like a child. And so how many Christians are there out there that you would label as an EGR Christian? Extra grace required. How many Christians out there are difficult? Don't get it quite right. Just seem to... They're like the fly in the ointment sometimes. They're, they're just, boy, you are a lot of work as a Christian, you know, that type of thing. Have you ever experienced that in your life? I never have. Everyone I've ever come across has been perfect as a Christian. But maybe, maybe you have encountered someone like that, that you just, you have to work with them over and over, and they're almost a burden to you. And guess what God says? They're mine, and if you welcome them, you're welcoming me. And so the next time you run across a Christian that's an EGR Christian, extra grace required, give them that extra grace. Work with them. Love them. Because if you look at Jesus and his relationship to us, we all need extra grace. Not one of us is perfect. He doesn't come along and say, you were the good student. No, we're, we're all fallen. We all have these fallen natures with us. And we're all a problem at some point in time. Verse 6 says, but if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, uh, millstone, there are different ones. When we went to uh, Israel, there's one inside the walls of the Damascus Gate. And that particular millstone, and they're round. If, If you guys remember... I'm going to date myself. The Flintstones? Remember the tires on Fred Flintstone's car? Just big round boulders. Okay, cut one of those in about third. And that is a millstone. And they would put it on a pivot. They'd stick a, a board through it, a round log. And what would happen, that log would extend beyond this trough that it would go around in a circle in, and they'd hook either a donkey or an oxen to it. And as it would go around this this kind of indented big tray, it would follow this path on the inside as the donkey or the oxen would pull it around. And they would be, the one in the Damascus Gate is about this tall. So imagine being, you know, four foot tall, about that big around. And it had a hole through the middle of it. And you can see it there today. There were others that would weigh just a couple hundred pounds that would be maybe about 18 inches, two feet wide by about two feet or so. And they, they would get a donkey and they'd hook the donkey to that. And it would grind out the it, nuts or wheat or whatever it is. And it would crush it and make it usable. Imagine being on the edge of a cliff at a river. Somebody has one of those that are a couple hundred pounds right there on the edge of the cliff. They tie a rope around it and stick it around your neck and tie your hands behind your back, and then they kick the stone into the water. It would be better for that to happen to any one of us than to cause a little child, almost an infant, a little older, to sin Also, somebody who is a Christian who is like a little child, if we cause them to stumble, any one of us, it's better to have that millstone around our neck and be thrown into the sea than for us to stumble someone. So how zealous is God for those who are his? Don't you dare. He even uses the word woe to you. Woe to you is extreme like like for instance have you ever heard um, somebody say execute the mission with extreme prejudice you know what that means 
assassination. That's what that means. And that's the intent of the passage when he says, woe to you. It's like you're going to be assassinated. You're going to be judged. There's going to be an extreme amount of discomfort. So again, verse 6, but if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, God looks at us. We are, in essence, like Zechariah talked about in chapter 2 and verse 8, for whoever touches uh, the apple of God's eye touches him, and he is very zealous over us and anyone who would come along and purposely try to tempt people to sin god is going to deal with them be it ever so severely now who was the first one that was enticed to sin eve what happened to the serpent cursed forever you are going to slime around on your belly is what you're going to do that was his curse Well, what about, you know, this woman by the name of Jezebel? Jezebel married King Ahab, and she would sacrifice to Baal. The sacrifice to Baal is where you would take infants and you would throw them into the fire. Or Molech, Molech would be a small iron statue that they would make kind of squatting down and have its hands out like this. They would stick it into the fire, make it red hot, put it out, put the baby on those arms. They would sacrifice the baby. That's Jezebel. She set up places like that, told Ahab, set those places up. She had a guy who owned a vineyard killed. And because she was messing with God's people, the Israelites, do you know what happened to her? It was prophesied that she would not even be buried. She was eaten by dogs. That's what, and they couldn't even find the body. I mean, it was just like scattered everywhere. And that was a judgment upon her. And then also in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation chapter 2, Jezebel's brought up again. The woman inside the church that the church was tolerating, and she led many into sexual immorality. And she's called Jezebel. It's not the same Jezebel, but her name is used in the same context as the one in Kings, First and Second Kings. They were both wicked women, both in the Old Testament with the Jews and in the New Testament inside the church. So God is warning us, do not cause anyone to stumble because if they belong to me, God is the protector and that person is going to be in deep trouble. And so God tells us, well, you don't have to worry about it because that person is going to be paid back probably sevenfold if they do anything to any one of us. You see the persecution of the Christians around the world? Don't worry. God is going to judge that. And we have to be patient and waiting. And he will be completely just in that example that is to come. Verse 7, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed and crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes to be thrown into the fire. If we kept on plucking out our eyes every time we sinned, we'd all be blind. Does God really want us to cut off our hand or cut off our foot? We'd be the church of the one-footers. You know, something like that. All of us would be in that particular predicament. What he's talking about here, and by the way, this is a figurative cutting off the limbs and not literal, but he gave it for dramatic effect. You know what hyperbole is? Hyperbole is where you have an example of something that is really quite small, but you exaggerate it to the point that is like, oh, I get your point. When Jesus said, you look at the speck in your brother's eye when you have, he's basically saying, a tree in your own eye. And you think, oh, let me remove that speck. And when you're, you have this log that's going around knocking people down and not just a speck. That's called hyperbole. 
And so he's using hyperbole here. If you have anything that causes you to sin, get rid of it. Take dramatic effort in order to get rid of that thing. And by the way, that would mean curtailing your freedom in order not to sin. Because those people who fall into sin and want to dwell there, they have no restraints on freedom. A free people must exercise restraint to remain free. If we don't exercise restraint to remain free, we become captives to whatever we pursue. And so God wants us to live a life that is free. And so this is hyperbole. Both our actions that cause others to sin and our own actions that cause us to sin are to be done away with using extreme prejudice. That's that same phrase again. We are to make sure that we get rid of all of these things. It is better to go to heaven without enjoying the things that cause us to sin here on earth than to enjoy them here and be lost. And that's what prevents many people from going to heaven. They don't want to give up the things in this life. Usually one of the things, the objections that people bring up is, you mean I have to change my behavior, what I can do and what I'm not allowed to do, that type of thing? And and by the way, when it, it says if you cause one of these little ones to sin, it is the word for scandalize. If we scandalize somebody, if we lead them into error, God is going to judge us this way. And actually, if we're doing that as believers, I doubt sincerely or if that person is even a believer, if he's leading or she is leading others into sin in this way. So it's explicit. We're to take measures to greatly restrict freedom in order to prevent ourselves from or cause others as well to sin. Now going on, verse 10. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that there are angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Go back to the Old Testament. If you were in a court of a king, were you highly valued? Did anybody get into the king that was not valued in some way or something to be adjudicated? No, you you were a special individual if you got to see the king. Remember Queen Esther? She couldn't even go in to see the king unless he summoned her and he went in to talk to her or talk to him in order to save her people. And she could have been killed for that. Well, the angels in heaven that are in God's presence are the ones who watch over not only little children, but all of you. You have these angels that watch over you. You think you're alone out there? You're not. Some of you need two or three angels. But most of us have at least one that's with us, and they see the face of God. And they are privileged. Now, what about us? Do we have access to the throne room? I'm glad you asked. It says that in Scripture, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time in need. And that is the NIV. The King James says, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace. Could you imagine in King Artaxerxes just busting open the doors? I'm here, King, and I have a request. Jesus would say, come on up here. Sit on my, no, sit on my throne. Talk to me. That's what Jesus does for us. But back then, if you did that, off with his head. They would have gotten rid of you at that point. So we have the ability to go into the throne of grace and ask for whatever we'd like to ask for. The angels who protect us are also in the presence of God. Both of us are quote-unquote special. And God says, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to watch over you. You are so special to me. I'm not going to lose any one of you. Not one of you will be lost. What a promise that is. He goes on to say, what do you think? He illustrates this. If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hill and go back and look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your father is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Are you a business owner? Are you willing to take a 1% loss on an investment? Jesus is not. At 99 and 1, that's a 1% loss. Oh, you know, you win some, you lose some. No, Jesus is not going to lose one. 
And he leaves the 99 and he says, I'm going after that one. And however he needs to get us, if we wander away, he goes and gets us. And he delivers us to the Father. And he says he will lose none that the Father has given him. He is the perfect shepherd. Us, on the other hand, well, that's a loss. Let's go on to the next one. Jesus doesn't do that. You see what is being depicted here in these passages of Scripture? Be like a little child. We belong to God. He protects us. He will bring us home to be with him. It is a fantastic story, and yet we sit there and worry, and we fret, what is tomorrow going to hold? And we need to just knock it off. You need to be able to just live your life. Nothing is going to happen to us that we need to be worried about. I know that there are some that are worried about driving. You get out there driving. I knew one woman. She would not take any freeways. She took back roads in all of San Diego because she didn't want to get on the freeway. Now, I I can understand that, not wanting to get on the freeway. I, I get it. But fearing, it's like, what if you get on the freeway and have an accident and die? It's a win. No, I just, you guys understand what I'm talking about, right? We don't have to worry. What if we get sick? Well, we get sick. God knows. He's not taken by surprise. If I get sick, God's not going to go, how did that happen? He's not going to do that. He knows exactly what's taken place. So the theme here is we're not supposed to worry. We are his. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So God's love and jealousy protects those who are his. Now getting into verse 15. If your brother sins against you, Go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are come together in my name, there I am with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. There is so much here. I have to unpack this. I'm not going to be able to unpack it today. I am going to unpack it, start to unpack it next week. We're to go to great lengths to restore a relationship when a sin has taken place. That's kind of the theme of what's going on here. And by the way, the entire church is being used as a judge. You know how many meetings are spelled out to take place in here? Three. First, the individual. Then you bring what would be elders inside the church, to talk, at least two elders, to talk with the person that was sinned against and the sinner, if they'll agree to meet. And then if they don't, and by the way, this is in the context of the church, if they don't get it resolved, then you're supposed to tell it to the entire church. Now, how many meetings do you think would take place inside of a church if there was a brother or sister in here that had sinned against somebody else? They said, no, I haven't sinned. I haven't done anything. And you found out about it. And if nothing is done and they don't repent, they're going to be kicked out of the church. How many of you would go and meet with that individual? Say, this thing is obvious here. You've you got to repent of this. And they're going, I ain't no way, no how going to repent of this. And they get that kind of attitude. And then they get kicked out of the church. How many of you would go and meet with somebody and plead with them to do that? So there's not just three meetings. In a large church, there could be 50 meetings with that individual. The individual, after three or four of them, would say, I don't want to hear it. You know, that type of thing. But with this, in the church today, do you think that this gets employed very much? You know, when it comes to doctrine... It's amazing what people have to say about this. You're to treat them like a pagan or tax collector. When you start reading 
different commentaries and online commentaries about how to treat a pagan or a tax collector. Now, when you read that, in your mind, you have an idea. How do you treat a tax collector? How do you treat an IRS agent who shows up at your house and, come on in, you want some cookies and milk? And Is that how you treat them when they show up to your house or your place of business? You know, or, or somebody who is of the church of Satan comes up to your house and do you just welcome them in? Is that what you do? There were some people that they started going into the commentary of this particular passage. Now, how would you treat a pagan or a tax collector? Let's see. Zacchaeus. How did Jesus treat Zacchaeus? He went and had dinner at his house. It was great. What about that other tax collector, a guy named Levi, Matthew? He became an apostle. And so they say, see, that's how we're to treat an individual who's unrepentant in their sin. The only problem with that, there's other scriptures that say things like, let me read it here. I got it. Uh, I want to quote it exactly. Here it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. I have written you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, somebody inside the church, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slandered or drunkard or swindler. With such a man, have dinner. Oh, wait, it doesn't say that. With such a man, do not even eat, is what it says. Now, take, for example, i got two minutes here. Take, for example, if somebody was in this particular case, they just radically sinned against somebody. Maybe a drug abuser beat his wife, beat the kids, sinned against them. She brought it to the church, said, will you please deal with this? A couple of elders go, oh, I'm not changing my attitude. I'm still going to come to church. And No, I'm sorry, you're not. And we tell it to the whole church. And the whole church tries to work. Man, get some help. You know, come on. We want to restore you. We want you back in fellowship. I ain't doing none of that. And you just kind of, because that's how they act, right? No, some of them are just, no, I'm not doing any of that. And I'm right. How many of us would say, shouldn't we just show him some grace and mercy? Do you think that there would be anyone that would say, well, I'm going to err on the side of mercy? And by the way, when they use this example of how did Jesus treat Zacchaeus and Matthew, he doesn't say in the text, treat them as I would treat a tax collector or pagan. He says, treat them as you would treat a tax collector or pagan. In other words, what was the common thing of the culture of the day? A tax collector and a pagan was to be shunned. And that is difficult. Is that what it really says? Well, what if the person who has sinned is a family member and they go to the same church? Do you kick them out of the church? What if it says, do not even eat with such a one? What if it's your spouse? You're not to eat with them? What? You're not to divorce, but you're not to eat with them. And how do you dissect all of this? Next week, I'll tell you. Let's pray. Father, there's just so many things that are difficult for us to deal with. And we'd ask that you would provide for us wisdom beyond our years to dissect these issues. Do what is according to your will Father, we know that we commit many errors and we know that your grace is abundant. But as we seek after you, you promised to give us wisdom as often as we ask for it. So we'd pray for that wisdom, Lord. As we read your word, help us to obtain the understanding that only your spirit can breathe. And we thank you for your care over us that you will not lose one of us. And we'll trust in that to be brought to fruition. In Jesus' name, amen.